train arrivera en gare de Calaville. Son terminus. Assurez-vous de ne rien oublier à bord. Welcome to the Failed Architecture Podcast, a podcast on architecture in the real world. My name's Charlie Clamos. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mark Minkin. Hello. And René Bohr. Hi. René, you're taking the reins for this episode. Um, right. An episode on, roughly speaking, the Calais, Calais migrant camp. Is that what we call it? Yeah, we could call it like that. Or should we say ref- refugee camp? Sorry. Yeah, well, terminology is a thing that we will definitely uh, discuss uh, in this episode. But... Um, yeah, let's. Well, it's it's basically about uh, Calais and like this large congregation of uh, well refugees coming from all over the world, making their way through northwestern France towards the, the UK and being blocked there in this geographical situation and starting to build their own cities, their own environments, actually to to wait for the right moment to uh, to cross. I mean, these kind of like self-built yeah cities, so to say, have been in existence near Calais since uh, the late 90s. In 2015, uh, I think there was a high point in the, in the number of refugees coming from uh, both Syria and, uh, and Afghanistan, uh, which also resulted in the fact that uh, these, so these self-built environments in Calais were, uh, were kind of yeah, proliferating at an enormous rate. Um, and so it yeah, just generated a lot of media attention, but also like a lot of architects actually went to, uh, to Calais to... Uh, I don't know, to, to map, to document, to build, uh, to go there together. So it was became almost a bit of an, uh, a hype in architecture. It was quite interesting. And by now, it's three years later. Um, there have been replacement camps. Um, the self-built cities have been evicted. Also, the, the container camps that were there to like rehouse people have by now been disappeared. Um, but people are still trying to cross to the UK from there, but there's no self-built cities anymore, and there's no more architects hanging around. And so that's for us a reason to, yeah, maybe to look back, like what did this, this hype within architecture and this, yeah, this very uh, problematic situation of the, of the, of these self-built cities in Calais, which, uh, where the conditions were pretty harsh, uh, to look, look back at the situation uh, three years later. Yeah, this is the moment to kind of um, evaluate and, uh, and sort of speculate on the architecture's role in, yeah. in this kind of... Yeah, maybe also that you know the hype surrounding these uh, uh, this this moment in time at which this migration became very spatial, also within within the border borders of of Europe, and got a lot of attention through media, became enormously visible, um, and it feels on the one hand like there's 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 almost like some romanticization going on. Uh, within you know within the design and architecture community like oh look at this makeshift environment it's so like bottom up it's so pop up maybe even I don't know and it and it 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 grew in such an organic way from like you know social and economic needs on the ground and not from like a top down uh, plan so on the one hand this this it kind of seemed as if architects were just fascinated by this by these these uh, organic dynamics um, of things just emerging and things working without their intervention, basically. On the other hand, it also became uh, uh, almost like a field site or a research site in, t- in terms of what can we do here, you know? Can we think of solutions of how to fix this or improve this? So there are, there, I think there are very various 
sides to this story and also um, various interpretations of it. I'm, I'm still not sure what I what I think of it. Um, but Charlie, didn't you also go there? Yeah, um, around kind of the... It must have been really a very particular flashpoint when one half, um, I believe, the south section of the migrant camp was being uh, dismantled by the French uh, police. Um, so there was a level of urgency about just maybe being there and seeing seeing what 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 sort of what was happening. Um, I was very conscious because we were only there for about two days. That, that we couldn't do anything, you know, we we couldn't yeah. really be helpful. And uh, I mean, that that really, I, for me, I think that experience really probably um, mapped onto my general attitude about what is possible in these in these um, situations. I think, though, I would still maintain that it was useful. I, I think in any of these um, moments or these kind of spaces, it's extremely important to explore sort of be exposed to them um you know so so much of the problems that kind of arise spatially um are perpetuated by the f fact that people just don't see things for their mm -hmm. in, the, in their own experience you know um but, but why did you go in the first place it, it really was just to sort of see see it for ourselves you know and the the project that i was um, engaged in was was connected to the um, problem of europe i suppose that as it was currently manifested and continues to manifest and i'm i'm pretty sure that the 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 figure of the the refugee at that year was was kind of was really fundamental and to to like articulating what was wrong with europe and right. what continues to be you know but um so within that project you was also putting the situation central then yeah i mean it was a sort of journalistic enterprise i suppose it was an attempt to kind of yeah. see and map and and sort of like uh, understand you know rather than actually help necessarily yeah. in a direct way because i don't believe that these people were like going to be helped by some some like ragtag bunch of um well-meaning young people who didn't have any experience with aid work. Anyway, we could um, continue talking about this, and I think it's more important that we uh, we get to the um, people that we're speaking about in this episode and the structure of it. Rene, could you perhaps talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm going to talk to uh, to a few people, actually, who have been uh, involved in Calais, in the self-built city, in, uh, in various ways. Um, so there is uh, Leopold Lambert, uh, architect, but also uh, editor in chief of the of the Funambulist, very interesting magazine and podcast and podcast also. Like I would say, uh, a field architecture uh, sister here. <laughs> um, and well, I think that Leopold Lambert has some very interesting perspective to share. And equally interesting is Merve Bedir, uh, also an architect who has been involved in different refugee camps uh, around the world, uh, in Turkey, in Greece, but also has been in Calais in, uh, in various moments. And we're going to talk to Ronja Hesset, another architect who actually did various mapping projects um, in Calais, rather than just reflecting on it, and even built various structures with uh, groups of people. So she took a more like, let's say, interventionist approach, actually. And I think there is yeah, some interesting tensions and differences between these uh, different approaches. Great, I'm looking forward to this one.
So uh, I was first there in August 2015 uh, and the situation, so that was in the context of the very large movement of people throughout Europe that we were seeing on our television or our internet screens. There have always been shelters at Calais of one sort or another, often in forests from, well, almost since time immemorial because it's the shortest travelling point uh, across the sea, of course, between Europe and, and Great Britain. You are listening to Grania Hesset. So there were, when I arrived, probably about a thousand or two, one thousand five hundred people there in a variety of uh, summer tents donated from rock festivals and uh, just plastic stretched over branches. Leopold Lambert explains what he encountered on his first visit. Yeah, it's essentially a town with its uh, with its main uh, main street uh, with restaurants and um, and little uh, stores, a little theater as well. Where the, um, uh, when I was there, the the Shakespeare Company was playing uh, was playing a play, so it was it was an interesting moment as well. Uh, it's churches, it's mosques, uh, it's and obviously many uh, many uh, housing. Um, also also probably um, forming neighborhoods uh, you know the Afghani neighborhoods uh, Syrian neighborhoods the uh, Kurdish neighborhoods the Palestinian neighborhood well Palestine now there maybe was not enough Palestinian refugees to actually form a neighborhood but a few a few houses here and there um, and then in the middle of that you have those uh, those containers those white containers that are uh, Again, like uh, really imposing a sort of militarized uh, yeah. form of urbanity in the middle of this much more makeshift, self-built, uh, ur- organic yeah. urbanity. Basically, we are talking about these buildings that were uh, created by people next to each other, uh, where one of them would be the, the uh, consulate of Rojava, uh, one of them would be the Kurdish restaurant, another one would be the Alewi prayer space. And these would be literally next to each other and um, it would create the street and then um, there would be people on the street uh, having some sort of uh, time and sh- uh, space shared and so on and so forth. When I got to Cali, the thing that struck me and strikes everybody most of all was the um, impressive uh, adaptation and organization that humans do do when they're in that situation themselves. And in the context of people building shelters for themselves, what surprised me and what I noticed, first of all, uh, was their need to immediately do other things like trade um, and build places of worship and organize kind of singing and sport sort of um, events. And of course, that's normal when you think about it, because that's what anybody would do if once they had satisfied their immediate need for food and, and sleep. Um, and but, but the extent of those structures, even for people who are temporarily there and intent on moving to Great Britain, was um, very impressive, very impressive. And when you come to... Um the camp that was, uh, let's say, planned and created by the state. And in the case, in this case, you have, yeah, like bolted um, uh, containers, uh, ground floor or one story high. Um, next to it is the water container. Next to it is the uh, st- another storage. And with the, with the same distance uh, put next to each other, 
uh, put together in uh, grouped together in different islands, let's say, and then around it is this uh, uh, high railings uh, with security cameras and all. And then there's one entrance exit with uh, again like high security um, to stop people from jumping on it or going around it. So there would be rolling uh, gates, but high enough that you almost feel like you're entering a sort of jail. And uh, right next to it is actually the cabin with the police or the, the uh, security personnel uh, who would take, take your uh, palm registration and uh, who would take your photos and other registration before you enter the camp. Uh, so the, the jungle was transforming into this um, and many people were actually being deported to other camps. Um, uh, so th this this was the main thing that was happening when I uh, really wanted to visit and really try to understand what was going on. They found a Calais that was under constant transformation not only by the inhabitants, but also by a powerful state destroying the makeshift city and constructing a closed-off container camp. Kranje, Leopold and Merve all responded in different ways. Leopold Lambert preferred to observe the situation and dedicate an issue of his magazine The Funambulist on the relation between architects and Calais-like spaces. Indeed, I've been, I've been there a few times and uh, um, probably feeling feeling very much the urgency of documenting the situation there to to a certain point to a certain um, extent uh, and also it's one of those things where um, you cannot not have an imaginary uh, of what it might be before going there because of the the amount of articles you might read about it, so I think I always feel an urge to confront those imaginaries that might be that are that are the imaginary you are getting from just reading an article, uh, and to just um, uh, I think it's very it's always very important for me in in many many situations that I've been documenting to to take to sort of understand the normalcy of the violence. Meaning to see it with your own eyes. Yeah. yeah, and if I think of Palestine, where I've been, I've been many times. It's like I, I mean, I've been in situations that were that sort of corresponds to the spectacularness that usually you read in in media. But more often than not, you might just see the apartheid on a on a daily basis in its all normalcy with without drama, with that uh, yeah. sort of punctual. Uh, search of violence, whereas the normalcy of it, the administrativeness of it, the, the, the what it does to movements, what is that? I mean, all this is actually for me the the most systemic violence that needs to be addressed. And so the same thing in Calais is like it's things are very things were very normal, so to speak. So I'm interested in that also because I think architecture is a very strong dimension of this normal violence, so yeah. to speak. Uh, so, so yeah, I went there the first time on a few days, literally maybe two or three days after the this horrible container camp had been uh, opened. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a way for me to also confront that as an architect because... Uh, 
even though architects per se were not involved uh, in this in this camp, uh, they, they, uh, you know, I don't I don't care about who has an architecture diploma and who doesn't. For yeah. me, this is an architectural operation. So. Yeah. But was that your your mission then, to as a human being and, and as and as an architect, come to an understanding of what was uh, what was going on there? Yeah, but my mission as a human being has just to do with myself. Like I'm not yeah. uh, I'm not. Um, uh, I'm not uh, self-important enough to to think that as a human being I have anything to say to anyone about the situation. But as a, as an editor, as a writer, as a researcher, and as an architect, yes, I, d I did feel like I needed to document this part of things that I'm able to have maybe an uh, a sort of informed opinion on, whereas there's many other parts on which I can just have, as you say, a human being opinion, which yeah. is just as worse as any any other random external human being to the situation. Merve Bedir co-founded the space for a women's collective in Antep, close to the Syrian border. But on other locations along the migrant routes, she decided to focus on examining the exact conditions, in particular of the spaces that actually were not built by migrants themselves. Uh, beyond Turkey, it's more research um, and trying to understand what's uh, going on. Um, I guess it's a kind of a conservative position in a, in a way, um, and also, I mean, just just feeling comfortable enough, uh, feeling of knowing enough about the place that you can start doing something yourself. So I don't feel as comfortable to do something more than research or let, let's say something more than talking to people, having conversations and trying to understand what's going on. So that has been more or less what I have done. Um, uh, Although even these are interventions, one could say. I mean, simply just talking to people is an intervention. And let's hear from Gronje Hesset, who spent considerable time in Calais early on, initiating various construction projects, as well as engaging in a comprehensive documentation of the camp. So there were a number of different responses, shall I say, from the international volunteer community to the situation in Calais. And of course, first and foremost, there were the responses of the people who were in that space themselves, migrating themselves, whether they're Afghan or Syrian or Kurdish or, or, or South Sudanese or Eritrean. And they indeed were the principal nationalities we, we met in Cali. But so those people, first and foremost, are organizing themselves. And then there is also, if you want to oppose it in a really simple binary, and I don't think it should be, you know, there's a, the response of a, of a volunteer uh, cohort. And the volunteers were kind of uh, not really organized at that beginning stage when I also went not being organized either and not particularly understanding the ethics or the reasons uh, the ethics of what my response should be or the reasons behind uh, the things as, as I found them. Um, so I went, but I went still, uh, on the other hand, uh, as an architect used to practicing in practice. Uh, and I went to just check on soil conditions, um, climate conditions, who my clients might be, let's say, and what might be needed in a sort of a, a conscientious move to try to find out something. And then I came back to Ireland to try to plan for something albeit in a very fast time frame, because I was trying, I was meeting also a shipping deadline. So we prefabricated structures in Ireland in the initial phase, that was the first phase of approach, and um, and then shipped them. And when we shipped them there, I think three weeks later, um, the, the, response, the need was different at that point, because the need kept changing. So the need would change really by the boatload, essentially. You know, it might be a lot of families. It might be a lot of Kurdish people. It might be a lot of young men. 
or young teenage boys. So so the needs would be quite very quite specific to, from day to day, and there was no adequate response on the part of any European states. Um, so the buildings and structures would have to adapt to that situation. Uh, the things that you like uh, prepared in in Ireland were they like sufficient? Um, I mean, were, no, they, were no. they still needed or when at the time you got back? So that's a brilliant question. Were they sufficient? Definitely not, in the, in the sense that I would really, really question the um, the presumption that, that many of us have that it is okay to plan for something that is substandard, that is not normal, that somehow people in the move, on the move in this situation should not have a right to live in a normal buildings or house or apartment even temporarily but somehow should be living in some other shelter that's that, that we would not normally expect people to live in and it doesn't correspond to our building standards and our building norms so in that sense no they weren't inadequate they weren't adequate at all at all um i conceived of them in my mind uh, uh as a temporary response but i i really would question the uh, the notion of temporary responses because they do tend to persist and they also proclaim that standards can be less in another space. So um, then on a more practical note, when we got there, uh, the need was suddenly for a women and children's centre. So we put two bits of two structures together and made one. Um, and there was a need for a community centre. And then there was we built a vaccination centre following that system. But they all um, were adaptations of Shigeru Ban's cardboard tube prototypes. And these all proved themselves, in my experience, to be deeply inadequate in the field technically as well, as well as the the other more the other ethical issues I outlined. Um, so people, when people are breathing and cooking, and when there's water droplets in the air, and I don't see any situation anywhere on the planet where there's never going to be water, or people breathing, or cooking. Um, so they tend to fail in that scenario, and then they fail when under strong winds, but they fail under human factors like people hanging hammocks from them and people, kids climbing on them. Leopold has a specific take on the way informality is being approached, and let's hear what he has to say. It has to do with uh, the narratives you usually found in, the, um, let's say, uh, lefty circles uh, um, or actually left and lefty <laughs> so to speak regarding uh, um, self-built neighborhoods uh, worker districts uh, appropriated neighborhoods and uh, or buildings um, and uh, one of those narratives being uh, sort of what I would call the humanitarianist one, uh, the idea, you know, this sort of scream of uh, left circle saying like, my God, the state doesn't do enough. The, we we need to do more for those people with like quotation mark. Hmm. Uh, uh, so I think, I think this narrative is fairly, um, uh, it, it's a bit, it's easy now to debunk it and to see all the problematic aspect of, of this, uh, of this idea that the state doesn't do enough when the state does way too much uh, in terms yeah. of police violence and uh, eviction, destructions and all that. Um, and then the second narrative is maybe, a, it's not necessarily a new narrative, but I suppose that uh, there is a sort of new trend in, in particular in architecture circles in fetish, fetishizing uh, this sort of uh, urban forms uh, and uh, sometimes even orientalizing it. 
uh, I think it it comes from a good it comes from a good place, so to speak. The idea is that we need to we need to sort of be able to talk about those urban formations in a yeah. in a much more constructivist uh, way. Is to say no, 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 you got it all wrong. It's like it's not it's not this miserable uh, piece of cities that you're thinking about. It's actually it's actually very creative, very. But so, but usually the way it's being described is uh, has some very strong uh, paternalist, uh, yeah. maybe even uh, colonial uh, undertones. Um, and I think that's what we were um, uh, we tried to debunk in this uh, in this issue. We tried to bring a third narrative. Um, but I think uh, when we address, I think I think first of all, I think that one thing that should really never ever be uh, um, taken out from any narratives uh, is uh, the state violence. Yeah. So uh, the fact that so the way the way we, yeah. the way I try to to articulate that in my introduction to the issue is to say uh, all those neighborhoods, those self-built neighborhood, reappropriated neighborhoods, uh, worker quarters, and all that, they're all in tension between what they manage to be and what they are prevented to be, yeah. and what they eventually will be so prevented to be that they will be destroyed by the yeah. state. So um, as long as we don't forget that, as long as we don't forget police harassment and uh, and this deployment of, of violence from the state, for me, I I that's I mean that's where the narrative should be. Uh, well, well, by now we were well into winter, and certainly the most testing phases of the cardboard tubes were in the uh, UC four eight storms in Calais. It's a it's a very windy place. Um, and a very cold place. And the other aspect of winter that was uh, raises very big questions for the um, the spatial arrangement and the uh, and the proliferation of sort of self-built, uh, disorganised um, urbanisms in these camps is was the fact of uh, fire spread and disease spread and so on. So we saw a number of big fires break out, very dangerous fires, and I. Um, became more aware that not only did we need to address the issue of thermal insulation and comfort for people and sound insulation and comfort for people, uh, which we had tried to do in the first phase, but also uh, fireproofing um, in that in that environment. Yeah. And I mean, did you take these considerations into account into new building construction projects? Yeah, we did. We did. Um, so, so the next system we used was um, a sustainable a system that calls itself sustainable insulated panel system or SIPS, which also has difficulties in practice in the field. Um, however, it was formed of two. So it's an industrially produced panel system that then is assembled. I would say in the field it doesn't really work either because it doesn't have inherently any of the logic of construction of buildings. It's it's really got only got the logic of the, the industrialized production of panels and the sale of panels. Um, it was though impregnated with um, a fire retardant and it was relatively robust uh, uh, and, and it was insulated. Again, both of those were low standards compared to European norms. So I would, I would say that as well. I don't refuse to use the term jungle categorically. I would, I would maybe say the so-called jungle, 
but I don't refuse to to use it categorically because originally it comes from um, from uh, some of the first uh, uh, exile people who um, who lived there, which were uh, Farsi speakers, and uh, and uh, I forgot the term in Farsi for forest, but essentially it is a very close uh, word from jungle, and it sort of became the jungle in English and French. Uh, based based from that, but obviously it it uh, it communicates a very problematic uh, imaginary uh, uh, with uh, the jungle law or or the fact that the the idea of associating jungles maybe more to animals than than humans. Um, and so yeah, I mean, well, the refugee crisis is like uh, I think. Uh, I think it uh, maybe there maybe there would be a difference if we talk about the crisis in singular uh, that sort of involved a crisis uh, this, uh, for Euro for Europe supposedly of having a, a few dozen thousands of uh, new residents or in a sudden it's uh, not a crisis. Well, that's what that's that's what that's what I mean. It's like yeah. it's only a crisis if you make it a crisis. But perhaps we can keep the word crisis in the plural because. Uh, people who are in those situations are very much in situation of crisis themselves, yeah. uh, but that's usually not how yeah, we it mean. represents a crisis for them and not yeah. for Europe. Yeah, clearly right. not. I mean, yeah. I, I don't really know. I don't really know what kind of yeah. who in Europe is experiencing crisis from the situation uh, which which citizens of Europe are experiencing. Um, so so yeah, I mean words are words are very important to describe the situation always. By now it was late February, if I, I uh, remember correctly. Yeah, just before the first destruction of what was called the South Camp by the French authorities, which was a very brutal and very um, violent destruction in on the twenty the end of February, first of March. Um, yeah, and what of, what I'm. I'm very interested in is also like for whom did you did you build at that point? Did you have like certain contacts who like yes, uh, I, I, yes, yeah. At that point, uh, I I I knew a lot of people, both people living in the camp and trying to get to the UK. Of course, sometimes they managed to successfully get to the UK, and I didn't meet them anymore in Calais. Yeah. And then and then um, and then a lot of volunteers on the ground who were there permanently on the ground. So. Uh, one group who, who were had set up a youth center, um, they they were the people with whom I worked to make a youth center building, yeah. and they were volunteers, uh, right. refugee youth service, yeah. Yeah, and like who who participated in the construction? Did you bring students, or was it like um, no, the refugees no, themselves no. actually? So um, I have a, a kind of a strong but. Uh, position that I, I don't think it's appropriate to bring students into the environment for the purposes of studying no more um, than you would you would bring students into that environment right, into your own home to study people without permission so um, I did whilst we did run student projects in Limerick where students made um, uh, components and then then we shipped them out we didn't bring any students into the camp because I, I, I believe, uh, as I said. However, two uh, graduates of my school of architecture who were young men who I felt could handle themselves and were very interesting and interested came out to help build. The people who built were generally um, a mixture of 
I'm going to say European, like British, Irish, Scottish, French um, volunteers, some from the building industry, not enough from the building industry, and whoever was living in the camp who wanted to participate. So I would say that I encountered mostly a situation where people did not want to participate did not want to be tied down to a permanent project um, because people were trying to get to the UK every night and that, that, that was where they were coming from. So the sort of simple concepts about participation and community participation don't apply in the same way in Calais in a camp of transit where everybody's trying to leave. Uh, yeah, so it needs to be understood in that, in that context. So, so yes, people who were living there and wanted a bit to change for the day or wanted to be, you know, uh, active uh, would work, but there was no requirement on them to commit to the project for any length of time. Interesting, yeah. And did, did, yeah. Your, did your buildings or construction, did they survive until the destruction of the camp? Um, the first, uh, yes, it, it survived just about the first destruction. Um, and part of it was, part of a porch was sort of stolen and burnt. Um, uh, and then we moved the building, which is a bit bonkers because, you know, you don't move, move buildings. And that was a, a kind of a crazy lo logistical situation. Um, so they survived until the very end, until the final, um, sorry, the, the first phase of buildings, the ones that made of the cardboard tubes did not. And the second phase with the SIPs panels um, did until the very, very end uh, when the camp was destroyed in November 2016. So while Gronje actually engaged with the construction process in Calais, Leopold is often quite critical on the role of the architect in these kind of situations. So it's very complicated because I can I can be a I can be a, a sort of hardcore um, like really standing on on my on what I believe and say no they cannot do anything and be very categorical like that. Obviously, when it comes to the sort of granularity of the, of uh, of situations, I think um, I think everybody can be uh, can be involved. But I think for me, it is less about creating uh, a new building for the for the Grand Saint uh, refugee camp, for example, or or for in Calais. Uh, than uh, very much being active politically uh, wherever it might be, whether it's in Calais or here, or um, uh, it's it's just we can we have to resolutely stop uh, thinking of uh, thinking of this situation as being a natural disaster situation. And actually, even in in our days and age, natural disasters are not even natural anymore. Anyway. There are uh, very much consequences of many, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, but so so we need to we need to really disillusion ourselves on the fact that uh, there there are not uh, an, there are not uh, uh, a huge community of interest in the fact that this situation as it occurs right now is uh, uh, wanted. Uh, so we need to we need to fight that. Which it's it doesn't help to. It doesn't help to redraw uh, uh, the houses of uh, of the, this uh, town of Calais. Uh, it helps to 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 very much fight uh, the violence that is imposed on people and and probably the abolition of borders as we as we know it uh, yeah. today. Right. So, 
I mean, architects should take a very political position here, like er, er, like research the specialities of this violence. Maybe mm-hmm. is is that uh, what they can do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we're as you say, we're 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 never just architects. We're also uh, maybe less so human beings, but citizens and citizens with privileges. Merve then proposes a completely different way to intervene, addressing the underlying infrastructures and regulations. We, we should feel responsible about Calais. We should uh, look at what we can learn about, learn from it. We should look at what we can do about it. And we shouldn't do it just when the hype comes up and forget about it two months later. Um, and But how can we translate this responsibility? Um, I see it in two ways. Uh, one is definitely um, one is disciplinary and one is non-disciplinary. Uh, the disciplinary one is um, basically trying to make sure that we are involved in the conversation. I mean, why am I not there in the uh, while the state is uh, developing that prison? Uh, certainly, I will be against it, but. Um, so and certainly I will put my position at the table as, as uh, I don't believe in camps. Uh, however, we should uh, say something about um, the the context of the minimum, the context of the dignity, the context of honor, the digni- the context of uh, what we deserve as as beings. Um, and this is again not just human beings. So. Um, yes, I mean, so in that sense, like, I want to say something about that. Uh, and then secondly, so in the, so this does relate to, let's say, architecture, because then these are all translated to those standards, regulations. Uh, you know, UNHCR has this whole standard about camps, um, from the size of the tents, to the cost, to the insulation standards, to the fact that you can't uh, plant a tree in the camp, so on and so forth. And so I want to have a say on that. I should have a say on that. We should have a say on that. As architects. As architects. Um, Even starting from the fact that they should, I mean, saying that they shouldn't exist. Uh, This is, is of course, very very political. And then beyond it is uh, is our responsibility in a non-disciplinary way, and this is what I was, what we were just talking about, which is um, and the, the the responsibility as a citizen. Yeah, and but going into a bit more into this disciplinary side, like uh, some architects have also uh, been documenting like uh, the situation in Calais on the one hand, but some uh, others have even been intervening also, like using their architectural skills and tools to to um, work on all kinds of constructions. Um, what do you think about these two architectural uh, methodologies, so to say? Sometimes not doing anything is better than doing something, uh, uh, in, especially in this case of very sensitive um, places. Um, what we should not forget is that uh, people come from war. Uh, they, they're escaping, escaping from deathly situations. Um, so I would say, like, th- this is what is not to be forgotten. And what we can say uh, to really make it concrete is maybe to approach from the consequence side uh, and 
for instance, check how many of these projects that are applied on site remain five years later. How many of these projects on site um, don't have a, have water running, and their taps not broken, right. and somebody still looking after, uh, and somebody still investing in it? How many projects are there? Which project of the, I mean, like the fact that IKEA's uh, tents don't have um, proper floor detail don't have proper uh, uh, disabled access, don't have proper uh, internal solutions for lighting and, uh, and so forth. Uh, the fact that IKEA tent uh, unit, sorry, uh, container unit, doesn't even solve the budget issue, uh, but the fact that UNHCR itself invested so much money that comes from donors into this project like this is the responsibility I'm talking about. And this is where it gets really problematic that we can put on the table. Besides the discussion on the possibilities to intervene as an architect in the context of a self-built city like Calais, there's also possibly a need to engage in forms of documentation. And Gronje, to start with, worked on an extensive mapping project. Yeah, so that, that, that's interesting because I have to say all of the time I was kind of in the camp or going backwards and forwards to the camp, I was trying to figure out what on earth the use of an architecture was in that space or my my knowledge as an architect, which kind of goes across, shall I say, law, technical um, uh, understandings and ideas about urbanism and space and light and all of that. I was trying to figure out what the value of that is in that space. Um, and what, also what kind of power or rights are of that value, of that knowledge in that space. Uh, and I had no answers and no answers all of the time. Hmm. Uh, I was there and repeatedly no answers still coming. But didn't um, your buildings so, prove to be an answer then? Yes. It, well, uh, I mean, I think there are elements, the buildings are, they're almost like a way of understanding how the environment works. You know, in practice, that's how the that's a, how the buildings performed for me. And yes, for sure, the Women and Children's Centre, and yes, for sure, the Vaccination Centre, and yes, for sure, the Youth Centre, and so on, provided you know useful facilities for people for for winter and a, and a spring, and they provided context. But those facilities were deeply substandard, and they had a right to much better. Um, to be provided by European authorities. So so they were only a sticking plaster situation ever. And I wouldn't particularly support the idea that we would continue to do that um, because we would continue to be part of this othering, othering of people in the migration space. And I also noticed where I was watching where everything was and how everything was being as I was walking around the camp all of the time. And I didn't photograph things because I didn't believe that that's an appropriate thing to do ethically. And I didn't measure things either. But I was sort of scanning all of the time with my architect's eyes, noticing how high structures were, how unfireproof they were, how many toilets there were, uh, where the groundwater was, um, you know, pooling and so on and so forth. And what you could see, uh, what the section through the site was, uh, these kinds of architectural readings that we do all day long, every day when we're walking anywhere as architects, uh, uh, if we're awake, <laughs> that is. So I was doing that and I was kind of mentally mapping all of the time this 
incredible and I would say wonderful sometimes world and still not knowing what to do with it I decided to start to draw it and then immediately because I noticed that some people were starting to draw very idealized uh, romantic pictures of the camp I decided to draw it in a very empirical way so I asked one of my students to start drawing it in AutoCAD which is the most unromantic program on the world in, in the world <laughs> um, to slightly measure it against our own profession in some way not knowing what I was doing or where I was going with this at all and um, we had to take a view also to you know create um, templates for things and to copy and paste a lot as well so we did do that too and we also took a view to to putting thing to deciding to produce maps at particular scales, which are architectural scales. Um, so one is to fifty, being an architectural scale where you can kind of see what the shape of the space and the person in the space is going to be like. Um, and then one is to two hundred, which shows you the landscape, and one is to one hundred, which shows you the kind of urban pattern a bit. And then one is to a thousand as well, which shows you a much more um, patternized picture of the urban pattern so i wanted to read shine a mirror back to architectural drawing in some way of this place and that's what i started to do and then more and more as time went on i decided and i saw the destructions happening i mean the maps took a long long time because i was funding them privately and funding the making of them and it was just when somebody a student or a someone who works in my office became free that they could spend a week or three weeks on it on them we, we did them over a year, but and in that year, time moved on and there were destructions of the camp and there were fires. And uh, I, I started to see that it was really important to record it as history in a way as well. So so it became about bearing witness and recording it. Um, yeah. And, and then I suppose finally, Rene, just to say uh, the dates, we had to decide, OK, when when is this map from? Because the, the, the town of the camp, if you like to call it that, kept shifting. So we fixed them on two dates. Uh, one, both dates were just the night before the two major destructions. There are two dates for the for the maps for the series map series, and they're fixed maps. They're not um, they're not live and ongoing, and uh, yeah. they're not open sourced. So they capture a specific moment. Yeah, they're yeah. fixed auto, AutoCAD files. They're not they're not live in an auto, in open source environment to be added to. No. And then the question is: Can an architect actually learn something from Kalem? No, what we need to learn from is what we have uh, lost, uh, for sure. Uh, I'm just trying not to romanticize it again, as I said in the beginning. Uh, so um, we kind of uh, designed our own camps for ourselves and we got ourselves in them. We made ourselves it, yeah. stuck in it. And we don't, we are forgetting what it was other, otherwise. Uh, and this is what we one can remember by looking at the the, uh, the camps, the self-organized camps, uh, for sure. Uh, and also the uh, what I mean, the capacity of the camp in that sense of what it could become. That that I think we also forget for ourselves living in the city. What is our how we see our own um, uh, life. Um, how much have we con have control over it actually how much do we make decisions of our lives our ourselves 
I mean, also very uh, from an urban perspective. I mean, like uh, I can also talk about it as an I mean, uh, not as a someone who is living in a city, but as an architect. Uh, what kind of spaces do we design for ourselves today in our cities? Um, that is definitely something to remem remember uh, from the camps. Not, I don't know, actually, it's learned from, it's more remembered. Leopold has published a few pieces on Calais, and I asked him how he perceives different forms of documentation, starting with Sam Jacobs' 3D-printed one-to-one replica of a Calais structure, which was actually exhibited in the Venice Architecture Biennale. I can't, I can't go with that. I, I, I do agree, and I, I mean, I, I, am, I am doing that myself as well, and I'm not doing that unproblematically. I just want to stress that, like, I'm not saying, like, oh, every, everybody's doing it wrong and I'm doing yeah. it right. Obviously not. But I think there are forms of documentation that are meant to maybe affect this narrative again that we're talking about and then there yeah. are there are some that are just fetishizing in that case objects that uh, i think is have are not helpful in any possible yeah. way but you think that some forms of documentation can be helpful yeah of course yes, it's important have you seen examples there uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think many many photographers have been have been doing uh, not many, but uh, quite a few have been doing some good work in in specifically yeah. not just showing the again this sort of fetishized inventivity or audacity that people have to build their own their own house when they really have no choice uh, to survive, yeah. uh, but to very much document the entire. Uh, state uh, state violence apparatus system uh, that is surrounding uh, that is surrounding this town, uh, be it the, the containers themselves or the walls, uh, the constant continuous presence of the police, the 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 the, the scanner that scans the, the the trucks to see if people are inside. Uh, all all those things. It's very important to document them, but but. Um, uh, and then, then I suppose the, the way those uh, informations are spread is very important as well. Because I mean, does it really do something to have to have it in the VNA? I'm not I'm not convinced that it does. Whereas maybe uh, that's where journalism for me is more important than art uh, to describe this matter. That doesn't mean that. Uh, sorry, I should not say art. I should, I want to say art um, institutions. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I mean. And, and so I'm also interested in this, like this, um, the fetishization of the informality. I mean, like, is there really nothing that we d can learn from, like, the immediate informality that exists in Calais? I mean, um, is there nothing that we can observe there and be reminded that these, some of these qualities that are being created there might really um, make, like, Paris a, a, a better city also to some extent? So I think, you, I think there's two dimensions of what you can learn so to speak which mm -hmm. is it, indeed it's again i'm going back to the humanitarian versus fetish yeah. it's true that it's probably already a better attitude to want to learn rather than to want to teach yeah uh, but um i think if you want to learn in order to, uh, to in order to wait in the situation then yeah of course i mean that's what documentation is from but if yeah. you want to learn for the more uh, so the more um, 
the bigger knowledge of the architecture profession, I think I think you're you're just like being uh, extremely cynical. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think Calais has anything to do, has anything to teach us uh, for the way we think of cities in general and the way and just like Calais, I'm saying Calais, but I'm talking about the favela, I'm talking about the slums, yeah. I'm talking about uh, everything. You also you also mentioned the word Orientalism in this respect. Yeah. Like, can you explain that? Well, yeah, because I mean, you know, we're um, even though we're now seeing. Um, um, uh, because it's still the, this this kind of uh, urban forms are are more uh, more uh, uh, eagerly associated to the global south cities and global north cities. So you have many Europeans and North American uh, architects who are going to Bombay, who are going to Rio de Janeiro, and yeah. uh, and uh, or to uh, follow my follow my look uh, to Caracas. Uh, uh, because I think what uh, I mean, if I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna go there completely. Uh, what the uh, Atelier Think Tank now, urban, think, urban tank, yeah. think Tank has been doing on yeah. the uh, with the Torre David in Caracas and then winning like in in Venice the and everything line. is absolutely yeah. disgusting. I mean, yeah. let me say it like that. It's uh, 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 so there. So I think that's where my my notion of Orientalism, uh, obviously uh, being maybe lo- less. Uh, Orientalism, as in towards the east, but maybe more uh, Australism uh, towards the south, the global yeah. south, mm-hmm. is is something that is extremely problematic. Again, like that, the fact that the slums of the global south have been brought like almost next to our doorstep here, like that to some extent that also de- destabilizes like uh, the boring life of spatial professionals who are making like these these regular boxes all day. I don't know, like. This form of destabilization within the sector isn't that productive to to some extent. For me, well, two things. First of all, I, I, I mean, if human survival is catching your attention, then I think it's that's already a problem. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then. And then, just to be clear, I mean, uh, and that's something that uh, that this new issue is addressing a little bit as well. Is like there's been there's been those urban formations in global north for forever as well. It's just we're not looking at it. I yeah. mean, in Paris, there's been Roma villages, uh, uh, self-built villages that get uh, that get destroyed permanently by by the French police. I mean, it's a situation that is shifting around, right? I mean, uh, well, the uh, Calais is getting uh, getting smaller, but we see like uh, maybe the situation in Libya in- intensifying, or in, in or certain places in Turkey, of course. But what in the coming years do you think uh, should the role of architects be? Like, should they get involved? Should they relate to it in any in any way? Um, again, I would actually try to be involved uh, even maybe through the professional organizations um, that are supposed to represent us, why don't we mobilize them uh, in the establishment of the law um, for, again, providing the simple, uh, the the very straightforward uh, rules of dignity of, of a person, of, um, uh, of someone who is coming into a country. Uh, you need to treat everyone um, equally, right? So, so this is one thing that we can really be involved in. I think uh, not allow people live in cells for years and years and years, um, and just just let this happen. 
I mean, when 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 an asylum seeker comes into your country and uh, stays in a reception center for one month, and then you process the application and you provide the residence permit and so on and so forth, it's fine. Maybe I mean, again, it's a it depends on your political position how you approach these things in the first place. However, um, it's maybe for one month we can handle this, but um, when it becomes a year, two years, three years. Uh, yeah, I mean, living in 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 four square meters uh, without without anything but a television. I don't know. Um, this is definitely a, a a point that we can intervene. I think. Um, but in what way should we witness or document or inter- oh, no. intervene? Intervene, change the law. Change the law. Yeah. yeah. Or or also design better spaces or. Uh, um again first for me uh, not to have those spaces the, the, to be involved in integration policies that are not about uh, uh, new reception centers but cities or where wherever everybody lives uh, taking the principle principle of equality as the basis uh, for the migrants as well. What is the difference between a migrant and a refugee? There is no difference. Yeah. Um, uh, in in essence, um, so th- that that's one. But two, okay, if there is going to be a reception center, then uh, I want to um, be present in the writing of the standards for that uh, reception center. Standing here on the site of the former self-built city in Calais, there are almost uh, no traces left of uh, what happened here before. Besides the fortified border landscape and some graffiti in the nearby tunnel, the area of the makeshift city is currently being redeveloped rather cynically to a landing site for migratory birds. Despite the, um, the seemingly enormous power of the French and British authorities, people are actually still finding ways to cross to the other side. Thank you. 